Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. The Beyond Pink campaign aims to empower metastatic breast cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about their diagnosis and make informed decisions. Learn more at lifebeyondpink.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about supportive care for breast cancer with Elspeth Neil Selby, an advanced practice nurse in the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. So, Elspeth, why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and what exactly is an advanced practice nurse? An advanced practice nurse hopefully is collaborating with a physician um, so that we're able to provide collaborative care for patients such as breast cancer patients. We're, the term at one point was physician extender, but that's not the term that we use now. We use advanced practice provider. Um, so we're really, we're available potentially when the physician is not. Um, for instance, um, with a surgeon, the surgeon might be in the operating room and we're available in the clinic if there's an issue with one of, uh, like a mutual patient. So tell us a little bit about kind of the background um, to that. How do you become an advanced practice nurse? What's involved? What kinds of things do you do? Um, what kinds of things do you not do? It, well, it's kind of an interesting, um, the way I went about it is quite interesting, actually, because um, my background, uh, my bachelor's degree is from Mount Holyoke uh, in Massachusetts, and it's in psychobiology. But I always had um, an interest in medicine and nursing because my father was a physician. Um, so, but I started thinking about it and thinking that it might be the best mix might be to become a nurse practitioner so that I was able to not only have a life kind of outside of my work, um, but to really provide a, a good balance. So so bottom line was I thought, well, I'll maybe go and get a bachelor's in nursing. So it was, I, I debated, elected to get a broad-based background, a liberal arts background, a recommendation of my dad's, um, and then decided that I would go and become a nurse practitioner so I could practice, but hopefully I would be able to really have a work-life balance. Um, so went down to uh, to Vanderbilt, actually, and um, did a degree in family practice and decided that, you know, it, fell into oncology, actually. Um, and so I decided that that was really the area that I could make a difference in. Um, so I did some basic nursing, and then someone asked me to uh, work in radiation oncology as a nurse practitioner. Um, and so it was establishing a role there, which was which was quite interesting because the physicians weren't um, really aware of that. So we collaborated basically, and um, we kind of alternated between visits. I would see the patients some visits, they would see them some visits. So they really felt like they were getting to know several different people, and if need be, they knew who to connect with if one person wasn't available. 
Um, I did I did uh, research nursing for a time um, in New Jersey, and then came up to Yale. Did research nursing again for a time, and then uh, started in surgery with Dr. Lana. And so tell us about the differences in role um, between a practice nurse, uh, an RN, and an advanced practice provider or an, uh, an APRN or a nurse practitioner. Are there differences in terms of scope, in terms of education, in terms of what you do, what they do, those kinds of things? Because I can imagine that some of our listeners who may not be used to having multiple different providers with different kind of credentials may be kind of confused. What's the difference between a physician uh, assistant versus a nurse practitioner versus a practice nurse versus a patient care associate? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, honestly, I, I approach it as we're all people going to, you know, to care for the patient. So, again, I, I'm repeating myself and saying it's collaborative, but it truly is. Um, so, you know, the PCA or the ACA, as, they're, as now the, the term is, um, they're the ones that take the vital signs and, you know, put the patients in the room. But they set the tone for the visit. Um, so they they put them in the rooms. The nurse then, the RN, now she, she may have um, a diploma, she may have a certificate or even a Bachelor of Nursing. Um, you can never assume. But they will, you know, maybe take a little bit of a history, um, talk to them about their medications and their allergies and and that kind of thing and kind of a bit of their history as well and present that to um, the physician typically. Um, and the nurse practitioner role is kind of we're, – we're like a bridge between everybody. So if the physician is not available – Oftentimes the nurse or maybe even the PCA come to us and may say, Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so is having an issue. Um, You know, the doctor that we both work with is not available. What are your thoughts? Um, so, So the nurse practitioner or the physician assistant, as far as I'm concerned, work in the same way, um, that we're able to provide care when a physician is not present. Um, You know, we're able to practice independently. I'm not as clear on physician assistance. Um, I think it varies actually state to state as to what, um, if you can prescribe and those kinds of things. Um, But bottom line is that we can see a patient, um, evaluate them, we can prescribe medications. Um, and depending on your area of expertise, you may be doing particular procedures and things like that. So really working very much in partnership with the rest of the team and and the surgeon or the physician in this case um, to, to really provide care in a seamless kind of way. That's correct. You know, Elsbeth, the other thing that strikes me, especially in the cancer space, is how important the whole team is in terms of supporting the patient and kind of really being there through that whole journey. Um, Talk a little bit about that and what you do to help patients kind of get through this. Because for many people, I can imagine that this is, you know, you, you, you just are diagnosed with cancer. Your doctor tells you about the diagnosis and maps out this whole treatment plan, which at the time probably sounds like blah, 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 cancer, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. 
and you just come out of the room feeling completely overwhelmed and devastated. And I feel like that's oftentimes the space where the whole team kind of gets together to support that patient. Talk a little bit about that and and some of the tools that you use to help patients to kind of get through that. Well, it's... uh... It, it can be kind of challenging because there are times where, um, you know, I'm seeing the pathology first that that the individual has a cancer. And certainly I'll discuss that with the physician or the surgeon before I phone the patient. Um, and uh so I'll, I'll phone them and I'll say, you know, unfortunately, I'm the one that's going to deliver this news to you. And it's the, the part of my job that I hate. Um but you know this is this is what we found and you you just sense that their brain turns off after you've said cancer um and there's kind of a pause and you know i'm i'm kind of waiting to see how they're processing things and so i'll i'll say to them you know yes this is what it is um and we kind of we need to move forward we need to get you back in to see the breast surgeon and talk about a plan. And I might briefly go over the pathology and say, well, you know, this is this is what we're seeing. We may not have a size um, that's very, exp- we might not have a design, you know, a, a size um, or that type of thing, but we may know some of the characteristics. So I'll briefly talk to them about that. But I'll say, you know, you will be coming in. Please write down all the questions that you have. I think that, you know, because otherwise you get in there and it just slips your mind. Please bring a second set or a third set of ears um, because we want you to ask the questions. You're not really hearing what I'm saying right now. um, But, you know, again, that's what we're here. That's here for. That's what I'm here for. We're a team. Um, no question is a silly question. So, you know, I will meet you. Sometimes I've not met them and I'm telling them of their diagnosis, but I say I'm, I'm making a point to meet you. Um, and so it kind of it kind of goes from there. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a really good point for people out there who are listening is that you want to advocate for yourself and you want to make sure that you're asking all of the questions that you have, writing them down, thinking about them in advance, bringing some extra people, taking notes. And if you have questions after the visit, you know, feel free to call your team. Um, and and it sounds like there's a lot of people on a team who can answer those questions. What's wonderful, too, is that we have this binder now that we give patients that are uh, newly diagnosed. And um, it's great because they have a, a place to put their pathology because we liked, you know, the, when the patient comes in, we gave them a copy of it. So they have a place for that. They have um, a list of who's on their team um, from the patient care associate, the nurse, um, the nurse practitioner, the physician. So they have a sense that it is a team collaborative effort and that we're all there to support them. And I can imagine that as a patient goes through that journey, okay, so they they get the phone call or they're called into the office, they get the diagnosis, they map out this treatment plan, they ask the questions, they go home. And then life sets in. And the idea that, oh my gosh, 
this is a real diagnosis. This is something that's going to affect me. It's going to affect my kids. How am I going to tell my kids what's going to happen to my work? All of those things come into play. How do you help patients through all of that? So we have a wonderful social work department that helps. Um, it helps in that process, and and that's certainly something that's identified right at the first visit. Um, and so the social workers are aware. We offer that to the patient, um, and so a relationship is started right at that point because it's it's a critical point. It's a critical time. And again, um, they're trying to process all this information. And how are they going to tell their daughter who's five or their daughter that's 13 or their son that's 13 or five or whatnot? Um, because developmentally, too, they're at different stages. And so that's a wonderful thing, too, because the social worker can really talk to them about, okay, well, what do you say to your child? Or what do you say to your spouse? You know, that, yeah. Yeah. And then I can imagine that, you know, the other piece that comes in in terms of emotional support and and so on is, you know, the guilt that comes with the diagnosis. What did I do? Was it something I did? Did I eat something? Should I eat something different? Was it because I've not exercised? Is it... All of that. How do you how do you talk to patients about that? So I bring them back to the present. You know, I say that you know we need to look forward, not back, um, and that you know there's nothing that they could have done differently necessarily because it's not a blame game. Um, it's really again moving forward. You know, we need to move forward, uh, look forward, don't look back, um, and that it's a journey. Um, I also say it's. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah, and for sure. And it's, it's a marathon that many patients don't want to uh, go on, uh, but it's certainly something that I think becomes a lot more livable uh, when you've got a good team helping you through it. So we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about support and resources for patients diagnosed with breast cancer right after this. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for various types and stages of cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about smoking cessation. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers and operate on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Elizabeth Neal-Selby, who's here to talk about supportive care and resources for patients with breast cancer. Elsbeth is an APRN who works in the Breast Center at Yale. And right before the break, we were talking about how people going through the journey of breast cancer, that this is really a marathon, not a sprint, and a marathon that nobody really wants to go through. So, 
Elspeth, another thing that often comes up uh, as people are, are going on this journey is the whole idea of genetics. Talk about it not being a blame game. But nowadays, many patients are being sent for or getting genetic testing where, you know, in fact, they discover that they may have a genetic mutation that predisposes them to breast cancer. I can imagine that that does a number of things for patients. Number one, it may incite in them some sense of guilt, uh, blame, oh my gosh, am I putting my kids at risk? And number two, uh, this whole conundrum of what am I going to do now? Talk a little bit about how you counsel patients um, who are facing genetic mutations. Well, it's it's quite interesting because over the years I've had people, patients approach it differently. I, for instance, I encountered one patient that had undergone the testing, um, had actually had ovarian cancer, but didn't want to know the results of her genetic testing, um, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, but but again, you know. I, I give them the, the information and I let them make the decision um, because it is, it is daunting, especially if you have children, girls or boys, because men get breast cancer as well. Um, my thought and my training um, as a nurse practitioner is primary prevention, you know. So, so being proactive, not being reactive, being able to kind of have a sense of plotting out things. There are a number of patients I follow that carry a mutation um, and want to be followed initially, and, you know, particularly women that are considering um, having children and all of that. They're trying to plot things out, um, and, you know, they they may have the, an egg retrieval or, you know, go through that as well, have have the eggs tested to see does it, do, do they carry the mutation, do they not, um, and, you know, and, and go from there. So they, it's plotting things out. I mean, we've had, we've had some really young women recently, um, that have either carried the mutation or carried the mutation in addition to having a breast cancer. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, it's daunting at that time in your life to have to try to plot out kind of the rest of your life in terms of what you're looking for, what what you want. Um, so, again, try not to overwhelm, overwhelm the individual, but just kind of put it out there for them. Yeah, I can imagine that for young patients particularly, right, you're 30, 40 years old, you're thinking about having kids, you've just now been told not only do you have breast cancer, but you also have a gene mutation, you know, so this increases your risk of breast cancer, it increases your risk of ovarian cancer, should you have your ovaries out, should you have your breasts removed, what about having kids, because if you're un going to undergo breast cancer treatment, you need to think about fertility preservation first. That's a lot. Um, how how is it that you kind of help patients map that out and to take a breath and to put one step in front of the other and to really bring together and coalesce a team around that patient to support them through what is undoubtedly a very complicated, very daunting, very challenging time in their life? 
Well, again, you know, we're collaborating with a, not only with with our team, but with the other um, specialties too. So, um, for instance, um, the fertility infertility people, um, you know, certainly medical oncology um, comes into play as well. If the if it's in you know if the patient needs to have chemotherapy because that's going to impact childbearing and all of that. Um, also genetics, um, they're, they're excellent. They do the testing and then um, the genetic counselors counsel the patient as to, you know, how, they sh- how this individual should proceed um, and what their options are. So again, it's what we're trying to do is um, make sure that they make informed decisions. So providing the information, it's a delicate balance between um, too much and too little information. So we have to kind of try to hit it in hit in between those two. Yeah. And, and I would suspect that some patients want more information and some patients want less. Exactly. And you can never assume, I found. I, I found that you really let them, as I've said to patients too, you drive the bus. Um, so you tell me what it is you want, um, you know, are you feeling overwhelmed? Is it too much information or are you not getting enough? Um, and I, again, I let them, it's, I let, let them direct their care and really encourage them to be their own advocates. Yeah. And I think the other piece is that, you know, as, as you mentioned, this is really an interdisciplinary team. And so making patients really feel supported with all aspects of their care so that they understand that this is really a coordinated effort, that they're, yes, they're at the center of this effort and, quote, driving the bus, but it's not like they're driving the bus without a map and without a crew on board who is helping them every step of the way. You know, a lot of patients, um, as they go through this, and, and we talked a little bit about this blame game that often goes on in the psychology of patients, um, will ask questions like, um, so now that I've had breast cancer and I'm going through treatment, what can I do? You know, what kind of diet should I have? Should I take certain nutritional supplements? Uh, what what can I do? What do you tell patients? So we do, there is um, a nutritionist, um, but also too, depending on where they are, have they completed their therapy or again, where they are, we have a survivorship program as well and they address things such as, you know, diet and exercise and, you know, all of those types of things so that, so that you know, it's neatly packaged up so they walk away thinking, okay, um, you know, I've, I've had these things addressed because how do I move forward? Because obviously I need to move forward and, and you know, get on with my life and do things that I would have done before my diagnosis and hopefully doing during the diagnosis. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly uh, having those kinds of resources and, and talking to people about, you know, eating healthy, you know, just taking this as a teachable moment in life to really make some positive changes in your life. I have found so many patients have really taken the diagnosis of breast cancer. And once they've gotten through kind of the tumultuous part of, oh my gosh, this is a real diagnosis and I have to get through treatment, really take it as a, you know what, 
I, I'm really going to live my life. I am going to suck the marrow out of life because I can and because I now realize that there's more to life than I had thought before and I want to live my best life. And and kind of getting to that point, I think, is something that um, is really wonderful to see with patients. So um, talk a little bit about, you know, can patients get back to doing everything they normally do? Because some patients may feel like, I've had cancer. You know, I'm not sure that I can do what I used to do. Can I? I'm not sure I can go to the gym like I used to. I'm not sure that I'm going to be perceived the way I used to. I'm not sure about whether my friends are and my loved ones are still going to love me after this diagnosis. And, and I can imagine how, while we say move forward, People may not feel like they can move forward always. How do you help them through that? <laughs> well, this sounds kind of silly, but one of the things I do to make people laugh, well, humor I think is important, but to make people laugh is say, think about me with pom-poms and I'm I'm cheering you on through all of this um, because, you know, the number of for because of the number of years that I've been in this, I've seen lots of I've been on lots of journeys and I've been privileged to meet all kinds of different people in all kinds of situations. And that there are so many success stories. And that's that's the exciting part is to see people, you know, two, three, four years, five years out and be able to, for instance, graduate them. And just say, you know, you're walking around and there are probably a lot of women out there that have gone through what you've gone through and you wouldn't have a clue. Um, and that there certainly is life after cancer. And, um, you know, and you can do any of those things you used to do. Um, and I encourage that, um, you know, moving. Um, as one of my colleagues said, you know, I don't ask them about exercise. I ask them if they move. And I think that's a good way of approaching it. So it's 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 just a more kind of natural way to ask a question that it doesn't have to be in a gym, a very structured activity. It can be outside going for a walk in the park. Absolutely. And, you know, as we're approaching Breast Cancer Awareness Month, as we wrap up here in the last few minutes, talk a little bit about kind of the advice that you would give breast cancer patients, number one, and number two, people who have not yet been diagnosed, but advice that you would give men and women in terms of taking care of their health so that maybe they reduce their risk of developing breast cancer or other cancers. I talk about it being really a lifestyle change. Um and and basically not a diet or not necessarily an exercise regime, but that, you know, again, as you had mentioned, living your best life. So, again, another thing I tell patients is everything in moderation. So, no, do you, you would, you don't have to never drink a glass of wine again. You don't need to never have a piece of chocolate again. Um, those kinds of things, because I think that, People come out of this and think, okay, I need to do this, this, and this, and I need to exercise seven days a week for 30 minutes at a time, and I no fat, no sugar, you know, nothing processed. And I think that becomes very limiting and very overwhelming in itself. 
So again, I guess my message is everything in moderation. Yeah. And and really, you know, get out there and, and do the things that you want to do. Um, so don't uh, really think about this is a limiting diagnosis, but but something that you can really take hold of and um, and, and participate in all the things that you would want to um, without really thinking about your diagnosis as a limiting factor. You know, in terms of uh, reducing risk, do you have advice for people? Because I'm certain when they come to see you and they bring their family, often their family members are going to say, well, okay, what should I be doing? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Well, again, you know, prevention is key. So routine screening, um, you know, and again, it depends on the age, for instance, that a woman's diagnosed, but certainly for just general population, we say first mammogram at 40. And at this point, you know, I typically will say annually and an annual breast exam, at least as just the very basic recommendation. And then again, well-balanced diet, fruits, vegetables, protein, low fat, um, and moving, um, doing some type of exercise. It can be just walking at lunchtime or something like that, as long as you're moving, um, that that's, that's important. Elspeth Nil Selby is an advanced practice nurse in the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.